Listen now to the Word of God. Now, I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hands. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the soul of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So reads the Word of God. The action of chapter 5 continues on here into chapter 6. The lion, who is a lamb, whom we met last week, Jesus, 
begins to open the seals on the scroll that contains God's overall purpose and plan for blessing and cursing, for salvation and for judgment throughout the course of life on this earth. Just for a bit of perspective, dispensationalists see this as the beginning of the great tribulation period, Revelation 6, so the church has now been raptured to heaven. Remember, they see the rapture happening at chapter 4, verse 1. So the scene in chapters 4 and 5 is still future from that perspective, from the dispensational perspective. Think of it as the celebration that happens after happens in heaven after Jesus rescues the church. That's what chapters 4 and 5 are about. But before he returns to judge the living and the dead. That's how it's viewed from that perspective. Historic premillennialists, and as we bring these differences to you that we looked at a few weeks ago in order to have a, a baseline for understanding different perspectives on this book, We'll be giving attention to these two primarily, dispensationalists and historic premillennial, because as we said, we are committedly premillennial here at Grace Church, and these are the two established uh, perspectives that uh, endorse premillennialism. This one I prefer. Historic premillennialists see chapter 6 as descriptive of the whole church age, especially these first four seals in verses 1 through 8 which leads all the way up to the very beginning of the end with the sixth seal, and you could probably hear that in the language of the sixth seal when we read it just a moment ago. And this whole period from the ascension of Jesus to his return is called the tribulation period. So these first four horsemen here, conquest and slaughter and famine and death, run through the whole of church history, all at the same time, interwoven between Jesus' ascension and his return. Then the next two seals bring us to the very threshold of the last days and the final round then of birth pains that, that, the, that characterize the, the, the last of the great tribulation before Jesus' second coming. So those are the two different perspectives that hold a premillennial view. One, still seeing things as entirely future. The one seeing uh, the, the events of the throne room really as the celebration perhaps upon the ascension of Jesus. After he'd finished his cross work and ascended back to the Father in Luke 24 and Acts 1, the celebration of chapters 4 and 5, from a historic premillennial viewpoint, would be more the celebration at that stage. And so then what begins in chapter 6 is history on earth from that point on, from that point forward, um, up until, again, the threshold of the very end times in uh, the sixth seal. Well, we'll find this pattern to be among each of the sevens in your outline. And now I want to draw your attention to your outline for just a minute. The pattern that I just mentioned, the first four seals being something that happened on earth, and then the, the next three 
being something that's more cosmic in nature, although they're not always absent from having something happen on earth, that seems to be characteristic of each of the sets of seven. But this particular outline that you have before you, I think is really helpful when it comes to appreciating what Revelation is about. The flow of the book. Sometimes there can be so many sections to this book, so many images, so many hard things to understand that we don't get in our mind how the flow actually works. Is there an outline? Is there a discernible flow to the material that's there? And I appreciate this uh, particular outline. It's been put together by a British preacher that recognizes that the structure of Revelation can be seen as sequences of seven followed by interludes in heaven. And I would say then bracketed by a prelude and a postlude. The prelude is that vision of the glorified Christ that we saw in chapter 1. And then we had the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. We then had the interlude where we saw the heavenly throne. And now we're moving into the seven seals. We see six of them here. The seventh doesn't come till chapter 8. But you know what? It really does function as a unit. At the end of the sixth seal, there's this interlude in heaven, but as the seventh seal is, is opened, the seven trumpets appear. So it really almost ends up being part of that sequence. So we see the series of seven seals, then an interlude, these two multitudes of redeemed humanity that we'll be talking about next Sunday, God willing. Then there are seven trumpets, and tucked in the middle of that, narrative in chapter 10 there's a mention of seven thunders and John is told seal those up don't write about those it tells us something it tells us we don't know how many series of seven there are but there's at least four and we only know about three of them following that there's another interlude conflict between Satan and the church then come the seven bowls and the fall of Babylon that resulted from that. And then the postlude, arrival in the New Jerusalem. I think that's a helpful progression to understand. We're going to uh, have this uh, printed available at different uh, times through the series and uh, try to have a, a marker that says we are here now, sort of like the map at the amusement park, right? Uh, but also, we have put this outline on the website so that right near where you can click in to stream the service, you can also click in and get this outline anytime you want it. Also, along with that, um, the slide content from each of the Sundays. Uh, slides, different people react to them differently. For some, they're a distraction. For some, they're a help. For some, they stay up too long. For some, they stay up too short. There's no way to satisfy everybody with slides. So we're just going to put the slides content, and that goes up probably Friday or at the latest Saturday, depending on how prepared the preacher is. All right? But uh, those are available, so you could print those out and have them available on Sunday if you wanted to print your own note sheets at home and bring them in. The content for however many slides there will be in the sermon will be there on those sheets, and then you can take notes in and around them. Uh, remember also at that same place is the, the Q&A button uh, that uh, we're just accumulating questions about the book of Revelation and answering them there, ones that we think would be helpful for all of us to read. Back to the sermon. That was my commercial. I'm following in Kip's footsteps. Uh, so Now back to what I'm paid for. Okay? <laughs> we find this pattern 
among the sevens that are in your outline, the first four being focused on earth, activities that happen on earth, the last three being more cosmic in nature. We'll say more about that as we progress, um, but um, we, it, it's good to note that here because this speaks of, uh, to their nature and purpose, each of these seven. But as to the flow right here this morning in this first set of seven, these first seals here in chapter 6, the first four seem to come together as a unit. As we've said, they really are characterizing all of church history. Each of these four things is happening during church history. So there's a sequence to the revelation of these seals, the seals being cut and the horsemen riding forth with certain characteristics and a certain color. They hang together and they come in sequence, but they do seem to all be happening at the same time. It's not one followed by another followed by another. It's all four of them operating at the same time. That's life and experience in this world. And these particular things, as we'll see as we move through them, are characteristic of this world. So as, they flir uh, as to their flow here, the first four come together, then the fifth and the sixth a bit more slowly. Then we see another interlude, chapter 7, before the seventh seal comes in chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. So clearly, these seals are symbolic in their meaning, the seals on the scroll, but they're also concrete in their application. Real things happen as the symbolic seals are slit. The same is true for the coming trumpets in chapters 8 through 11 and then the bowls in chapter 16. And it's likely also then true of the thunders in chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, whatever those refer to. As to why there are sevens and why there are four of them, God gives four warnings in Leviticus 26, and many commentators who write on Revelation recognize the linkage with that text of Scripture regarding covenant disobedience and warnings from God four times in Leviticus 26, verse 18, 21, 24, 28, where God says in somewhat different words each time, I will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. One more of the Old Testament backgrounds that seems to be present, standing behind this narrative in Revelation, helping us understand and appreciate what's going on here. It's important to note that the initiation of each of these six seals is in response to a direct charge from the throne room of God. Did you catch that? We're going to have to bring that up several times this morning because I think when we first hear that, our inclination is just to say, yeah, I see that, I understand that. The initiation of each of these seals comes from the throne room of God. If we say it that easily, we're not thinking about what these seals are accomplishing, what's actually happening as a result of them, and the go being given from the four living creatures before the throne of God to do this, to enact these things. So we'll be circling around that thought several times this morning, and we'll come back to it again at the end, because it's a stunning insight. The initiation of each of the six seals is in response to a direct charge issued from the presence of the God whom we saw these last two Sundays in chapters 4 
and 5. They're coming from Him. And at least in these first four, in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 6, He's using the evil forces of the world to accomplish His purpose. It's not at all unlike what He did in Habakkuk's day that was so troubling to that prophet. And just as there... We also see a dual role here for each of the judgments that go forth from the throne room of God. At once, they work for sanctification in believers, a testing of their faith, and they also at the same time are working as punishments on unbelievers, temporally speaking, but warning them about coming judgment. So there's a twofold implication to each of these seals that has implications for believers and unbelievers alike. With that, we finished our introduction. Let's look at this chapter in three parts then, and you can see the outline listed there. We've just grouped the four seals together in verses 1 through 8, and then the fifth in verses 9 through 11, and the sixth in verses 12 through 17. So essentially we're going to walk through the seven seals, but we're recognizing the unity of numbers 1 through 4 as we do that. Let's walk through this. Look at verse 1 again, and we'll read this text again as we progress through it. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse And its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. So Jesus opens one of the seals, then one of the living creatures gives the command and each horseman answers the call in sequence. He who was seated on the throne and the lamb who was slain that we met in chapter 5 are in sovereign control of all that happens in this world. No questions asked. Amen? You see that here. That is an undeniable point that the reader should perceive. The one who's seated on the throne and the Lamb are in absolute, unquestioned, sovereign control of all that happens in this world. And what we're talking about here is the initiation of divine judgment. We're comfortable with seeing God initiate blessing and salvation. But when the evils of judgment, especially when evil forces are being used as implements of God's judgment, we can struggle with that just like the prophet Habakkuk did. But God is in sovereign control of all that's going on. That's the lesson Habakkuk learned. That's the lesson we learned. Because this first horse is white, and because its rider was given a crown and came out to conquer, some think that this one is Jesus, that the first rider stands apart from the other three. But that just doesn't seem to be the case. It's quite a bit more likely that if the white is significant here, it's significant as sort of a counterfeit. It seems odd as well that Jesus would initiate his own coming by slitting the seal, having the living creatures say, come, and right here from the start, he rides in on a white horse. Jesus rides in on a white horse in chapter 19, verse 11. I don't think it's happening here 
in chapter 6. Even so, others have thought that this writer may have a positive role of somewhat of a different nature, represented by his wearing white and having a crown, or being on a white horse and wearing a crown. For example, the positive role might be that his conquering may represent the advance of the gospel. No less than George Eldon Ladd, my personal hero in the writings on the book of Revelation, holds to this view. I personally don't, but he does. It's worth reading. He spends four or five pages on it in his commentary, but the parallels between these four horsemen and the images of horses in Zechariah chapter 1 and Zechariah chapter 6, which depict God's judgment, make this seem unlikely. It seems like these four are united together as an expression of judgment. And white has just been the color of conquest as presented in this particular sequence. These Old Testament passages of Zechariah 1, by the way, that's verse 8 and following in chapter 1. It's right at the beginning of Zechariah 6. These Old Testament texts uh, don't line up perfectly with ours. For instance, there's no indication that the horse's particular colors are, uh, has an established meaning in apocalyptic. The colors are similar from Zechariah to Revelation, but it doesn't appear as though they are reflecting something that's just sort of uh, true in all of its appearances in apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature. But it does point out that this imagery is not uncommon in that genre. These these horses riding forth as expressions of the judgment of God. And here in Revelation 6, there is discernible significance to their colors, even though it doesn't appear to be the case in Zechariah. White here is conquest. Red is bloodshed. Black is scarcity or famine. And pale is death. It's the color of death. Although the images here are closer to Zechariah 1 and 6, the content here in Revelation 6 is actually closer to that of Matthew 24. That's one of the more helpful passages to read alongside of Revelation 6 in order to understand and appreciate what's happening here. So while the images of horses are compelling, and while certainly John had Zechariah's prophecies in mind as he wrote here, the content of Matthew 24 is really helpful as it, to lay alongside of Revelation 6. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount of Olives where he's answering his disciples' questions about the end times. The progression is the same here as there. And each helps the understanding of the other. So as you read through Revelation 6, just jot down a note somewhere and say, read through Matthew 24 as part of this study. And I think you'll appreciate the help that the two are to one another. We can't spend that long with each of the seals, all right? But that's some introductory thought. Let's move on to the second one now. When he opened the second seal, verse 3, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people would slay, that's literally slaughter, one another. And he was given a great sword. 
where the first writer brought conquest, which is more like warfare, perhaps powerful military force. The second writer brought confusion and strife, perhaps civil war is a good way to think about this, or something more like civil unrest, especially targeting Christians, persecution of Christians. That's how the second horseman differs a bit from the first. Verse 5, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. I'm going to take volunteers on interpreting that one. <laughs> now, that is challenging to understand what's being said here. Not entirely. It's, it's clear enough to understand what's going on here. The particular elements don't tie off neatly to any one thing. Let's talk about it for a moment, though, and appreciate what's here. First of all, these scales are the means of measuring out food evenly especially during famine, and it's not hard to see that that's what's going on here. Some form of famine or scarcity or lack is being seen here under the third seal. A quart of wheat is essentially enough for a man to eat for one day. It'll prepare prepare enough food for one man to eat for one day. But a denarius is a day's wage. This means that a husband and father can't afford to feed his whole family, is what we're seeing in the text. But three quarts of barley was enough for three days for one man, or one day perhaps for a typical family, a less expensive grain. So, These two together suggest that the famine here, while serious, is not dire. It's not that there's no food. Uh, It's that food is inaccessible. Maybe there's items missing from the shelves. Still, these prices are inflated 10 to 12 times over the first century norm. So it's expensive. Food is scarce, and what you can get is expensive, and a day's wage can feed one person comfortably and perhaps a small family uncomfortably. This recalls Ezekiel's description of the siege of Jerusalem in Ezekiel 4. Listen to the similarity of description and thought. Verse 16, Behold, I will break the supply of bread in Jerusalem, They shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety, and they shall drink water by measure and in dismay. This is a picture of what we see right here in Revelation 6, a time of scarcity regarding do not damage the oil and the wine. These are finer substances that would have been exceedingly expensive in comparison to wheat and barley. But they are still available. 
giving added indication that this famine is limited. It's painful, but it's not dire. And even though no one could afford oil and wine, they don't want these to be destroyed or taken away. There's evidence that that kind of thing happened during the first century. It's, it's documented, interesting story, has something to do with, with wine, but not with oil. Uh, so we're not going to take time for that, but this is a descriptive of lack, of famine. So famine has been worse in Israel than this, but it's still bad. What I mean by that, and it's hard even to think about, but passages like Ezekiel 5, parents aren't eating their children during this phase. And how many times do we see that description either as warning or as narrative about a city under siege in the Scriptures? So, third seal, famine, scarcity, lack, hardship, but not yet just abject suffering. Verse 7, when, the fourth, uh, when we, he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him, and they were given authority over the fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. It's a disturbing image. This seal, though, seems to be a summary of the previous three. We see here that this death that arrives on the pale horse comes from the previous three horses. Sword. Famine, pestilence, and the fourth category is wild beasts. Wild beasts are added here. This draws from God's promised judgments on unfaithful Israel in Ezekiel 14. It's the same four judgments that appear there in the Old Testament prophet. And this was again for not living according to the covenant. Ezekiel wrote, for thus says the Lord God, how much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence, to cut off from it man and beast. Once again, we see that the meaning of these judgments is anchored in Old Testament Scripture more than in current events in our day. Friends, this has to sink in as well. We don't look around us primarily to see and to understand what Revelation means. To understand what Revelation means, what it's teaching, what it's saying, we go almost exclusively to the Old Testament and see where the imageries came from that work their way forward and that are picked up by John in a vision of heaven and on the things that happened as a result of that vision that he saw. When we look around us in the world, we're reminded of the things that we read about in this book, and we are reinforced in our understanding of the fact that they are true, that they will happen, that they are coming. But that's the most help modern-day headlines can give us with regard to understanding this book. 
the understanding itself of what's being taught and how to perceive it will come from the pages of Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. And clearer Scripture interprets less clear Scripture. We get a lot of help from the Old Testament with the book of Revelation. Far wiser scholars than I or most that I know have said there's not really a direct quotation of the Old Testament anywhere in the book of Revelation, but there is barely a verse that doesn't have an Old Testament allusion or reference. That's where we find the meaning of this book. It's something for us to hold on to, to be convinced of, and to work hard at as we read it. So these judgments are anchored in Scripture. They're not anchored in modern-day headlines. So the thing that we do with them is we are intended to be reminded of the fact that they are true. But what we don't know is how many rounds of birth pains they will be before the end. Because the seven thunders are sealed up, we don't know how many sequences of seven there will be before the end. I believe that's intentional because the purpose for having such writing as this in the Scriptures is not to set dates or to set sequences in order to understand just the ordering of events so that we can figure out when the next thing is going to happen and then hold one another accountable to that belief. That's not the way it's supposed to work. The way it works is when we see in the world around us the things that we see in the text, when we recognize that these images in Scripture are actually happening in the world around us, we're reminded that God is in sovereign control of this world, that He's worthy of our trust, that we're called to live with our attention fixed on Him, worship, obey, endure. That's the calling of the book of Revelation. And when we are doing that with this text, we are being responsible with what we're told here. When we start trying to make charts and assign particular people in the history of humanity to particular personages or images or illustrations or beasts in the book of Revelation, we're working against the text. We're not going to find satisfying understanding of the text. Yes, we can see manifestations of these beasts and personages and so forth in people that we recognize in our day, but where are we in the sequence from beginning to end? How close does this mean we are to the end? There's absolutely no way to tell, and Scripture doesn't give us any help in that direction. So, just a few thoughts, free of charge, this morning. Also, seeing that this touches a fourth of the earth here, uh, the, the fourth seal, tells us that it's significant, but it's not yet final. It's only touching a fourth of the earth. And by the way, the grouping of the four seals here, that's one of those apocalyptic numbers of completeness, remember? And so, seeing these four seals work together is an illustration of the fact that the judgment of God through this season is going forth according to His plan and purpose. Let's move now into the fifth seal, verses 9 through 11. 
This is the only seal which does not take place on earth in this particular, doesn't have any action on earth in this particular set of seven. Worth noting as we read about it. Look at verse 9. When the When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. It's uncertain here just what altar this is. Is it the altar of sacrifice? Is it the altar of incense? Is it some altar we don't know about? An altar that's present in heaven that wasn't in the temple or anything like that? We really don't know. It's just an altar. But the image clearly suggests that these lives have been a form of sacrifice and that in imitation of their Savior. And while it's possible, possible, that these are literal martyrs, I would say while it's likely that these are literal martyrs, it's also possible that this refers to those who've remained faithful under persecution and not just those who have died for their faith. Uh, for instance, the symbol of identity for all Christians is a slain lamb. That's who we follow. And each of us has been called by the slain lamb, by Jesus himself, to lose our life for his sake and for the gospels. The fact that they're under the altar here also suggests protection. Verse 10. They cried out with a loud voice, O Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They're still waiting for the day of redemption along with the rest of us and with the rest of creation, Romans chapter 8. Verse 11, they were each given a white robe, which is the garb of the redeemed, And if we looked over to chapter 7, verse 14, just the next chapter over, and we'll see this next week, it's it's one of the places where we decide that maybe these weren't all martyrs. Maybe they were faithful Christians who've come out of this great tribulation period and have stood up against persecution, whether they gave their lives or not. And as we talked about the definition of that word martyr way back in chapter 1, we can see how that might work. That word doesn't appear here, but that's the thought uh, in talking about even whether, um, whether each one under the altar here in chapter 6 actually gave his or her life for the gospel, lost his or her life in their testimony and in their witness. So verse 11, they were given a white robe, which shows that they're the redeemed, and they were told to rest a little while longer This is stunning. Until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. The ones seated on the throne and the Lamb are in complete and meticulous control of all that's happening in this world. Amen? Also, this final statement here doesn't require that they were killed, just to continue that point again, doesn't require that they were killed as a direct result of their witness, but they did remain faithful in the great tribulation, and surely many lose their lives in that day. Still, since this was written, 
there have been more Christian martyrs in the last 150 years than in the previous 1,800 years combined. Isn't that amazing to think about? That comes from several different sources. More martyrs in the last 150 years than in the previous 1,800 years, 18 centuries combined. So there's no small number of true martyrs that are here. Ones that have laid down their lives for the sake of the gospel. There's just no indication that they're set apart from other believers before the throne of God. And that's why this is a point worth making. Let's move now into the sixth seal in verses 12 through 17. With the opening of the first five seals, we've seen things that are happening throughout the church age, both on earth, uh, seals one through four, and in heaven, the fifth seal. Now we come to the very threshold of the future with the sixth seals. With the sixth seal, we see cosmic disturbances here. Even when God comes close at times, there are difficult signs to deal with. Think of 19 and the manifestations of his presence at Sinai with the giving of the law. Hard signs, just like here with the sixth seal. Dark clouds, thunder, lightning, fire. Think of Isaiah 2 and Hosea 10. People hiding themselves in caves, just like mentioned here. There's also Isaiah chapter 13, verse 10. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light, and the sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. There's also Isaiah 34, verse 4. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as the leaves fall from the vine like leaves falling from the fig tree. Similar images to what we hear here in Revelation 6. Jeremiah 4 is another. I looked on the mountains and behold, they were quaking and all the hills moved to and fro. How unsettling is that when mountains move? Such will be the days as the end approaches. We've seen it talked about in the Old Testament prophets. We read about it right here, verse 12. When they opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals And the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. 
calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? I'd rather be buried under a mountain than face the wrath of the Lamb. But we might also say, I'd rather be buried under a mountain than bow the knee in repentance before the Lamb. What we read here, though, in the sixth seal is that there was no advantage. Wealth, military might, royal authority, no advantage. Nothing but Jesus will be able to save you on that day. There's a mingling of poetic language here and of real disaster. And it touches everyone, rich and poor, strong and weak. These are signs, not that the end is near, wrote George Beasley Murray, but that it's arrived. And that's where we come to at the end of Revelation 6. We've come to the very threshold of the end. And we're only in chapter 6. The signs are not that the end is near, but that it's arrived. But before we see any of that, we have another interlude of worship. That's chapter 7. And thus ends our text for today. So what do we learn from a text like this? What should we take away with us other than huh, interesting Bible facts looking ahead to the future? I'm going to mention three things. Aside from a strong refresher course on how thoroughly this book draws its imagery from the Old Testament, not from current events, we learn that, what we said just a few moments ago, all current events do is provide us with fresh testimony that what we read here is true. That's the first thing I would say we take away. Current events provide us with fresh testimony that all we read here is true. And it's coming. But there's just no way to know where we are in the process, how many rounds of birth pains remain before the day that is known only to the Father, not even to the Son. That's what Jesus reported in Matthew 24. So that's the first thing. All current events provide us with a fresh testimony that all we read here is true. We also learn afresh, secondly, how thoroughly all things are in the hands of God. We've made that point several times, and I told you we'd circle back to that in the end. Him who is seated on the throne and the Lamb who was slain have all things in their hands, and this passage reminds us of that. What we see here is that He's the one who gives the go or the no-go on all that happens on this earth. Think about that. He's the one who gives the go or the no-go on all that happens on this earth. If He gives the go for each of the six seals, as we've read about them in Revelation chapter 6, He gives the go or no-go on everything that happens on this earth. 
even war and bloodshed and famine and death. All we see that has us crying out with the saints under the altar, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge those who dwell on the earth? Ever found yourself asking that question? All the things that have us crying out that request with the souls that are under the altar, He's got it. He's got it all. It's in His hands. The one seated on the throne and the Lamb are in control of what happens in this world. That's number two. Number three, if we put number one and number two together, we should be strengthened to stay with Him through any trial that He allows in our day. There's our real takeaway. If we actually see what's going on in number one and number two, we should be strengthened, fortified, enabled to stay with Him through any trial He allows in our day. The things we see, the things we experience, the hardships that prove the fallenness of the world, the disputations between nations, and the dissensions between people. Not even necessarily just the famous ones. There are dissensions evident in each one of our lives, broken relationships that are painful and hard to imagine. And we can even be tempted to blame God for them and not flee to Him to find comfort, encouragement, direction, refreshment of spirit in the midst of the fallenness of the world. These are tests for us, by the way, friends. These are tests of our sanctification, is our trust fixed in the one who has all things in his hands. The things we see with regard to scarcity that generates lack and even leads to death, like right here in chapter 6, death that results from, from all that happens here, all the way from natural causes to attacks by wild beasts. All of this gets the go-ahead from the throne room of our God. We could struggle mightily with this. Or we could recognize that it's only a God of such great power and such proven goodness that's actually worthy of our worship in the first place. If He didn't give the go, and he had to react like the rest of us. What makes him worthy of our worship? But when push comes to shove and we begin to see the seals being opened and how this all takes place and what happens in response to the charge of each of the living creatures, we recognize that this is a great and glorious God that we serve, the very God who struck our hearts with awe as we saw His throne room in chapter 4 and then His Son in chapter 5. 
This is a God worthy of our worship. This is a great and glorious God. This is a God whom we can trust, even in days like this. And doesn't that make a difference to you? If you know that what you're facing today passed through the throne room of God and got the go-ahead from there for your sanctification if you're a believer, doesn't that make a difference in how you view today? How you receive it, how you respond to it. And if there are some in this room or under the sound of my voice who haven't trusted Christ as Savior, the hardships of today are just a reminder to you that more and worse are ahead because He's not working for your good. He's working for His glory. And if you have not bowed the knee before Him in repentance and faith, then judgment is all that awaits you. He wants you to turn around. Then He's working for your good. But if you haven't bowed the knee before Him in repentance and faith, this God is still an enemy, not a friend. He's a conqueror. He needs to be your king. And either you will turn around and receive the glories of that relationship that await you, or you'll face His judgment. And those are the only two options. He's worthy of our full and unswerving trust. He's worthy of our faith and our obedience, our worship, obedience, and endurance. And He can enable it all for His glory. If you will, let's pray together and ask Him to do just that. And as I pray, those who are going to help serve communion, please join me at the front. Heavenly Father, it's an overwhelming passage in so many ways. One that reminds us of many uneasy truths, realities, experiences, but one that strangely warms us and strengthens us and undergirds our faith such that when we see that all things of these sorts are in your hands, you truly are a God worthy of our worship and praise. Father, if there is any here this morning who has not bowed before you in repentance and faith, I pray that you might open their eyes even as we pray, that you might call them into relationship with yourself and grant them that gift of repentance by which they might receive your free gift of eternal life. And for all of us, Father, who know Christ as Savior and who are refreshed by this reminder of who you are. Oh, Lord God, I pray that as we remember the body and blood of the Lord and proclaim his death until he returns, we might be strengthened now to go out this week and stand firm on the gospel that we believe and be the mouthpiece of the true and living God in a day of encroaching darkness that needs to hear the rescue that's available. You're the sovereign Lord and God of all creation. 
It's the name of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.